Our uh, first sermon reading today is going to come from Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 17 through 24. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the tree of life. Our next reading comes from uh, the uh, epistle to the Romans. This is chapter eight. Verses 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory that is renewed, revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our sermon text comes from the Song of Songs. And I'll be reading chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its youngs. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone, on hanging a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breeze and the shadow flees, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So that's a different sermon text. Uh, yeah. So today we are going to look at probably, uh, you know, since uh, this is our uh, fourth in our series about the Song of Songs, uh, and this is probably one of the most famous parts of the Song of Songs, mainly because it's so perplexing. What are we to do with this? Uh, as we read this poem in chapter 4, we find that it consists of a list composed by a man 
to his lover in which he compares her body to various physical features as well as plants and animals. Pretty much exactly what you heard. We hear this and it sounds pretty, but also, if we're honest, very, very weird. What woman would want her hair compared to a flock of goats or her neck to a tower with shields hanging from it? It seems so bizarre and foreign to us. And typically the response, and I don't think this is a bad one, is just to shrug her shoulders and say, you know what? Them was the olden days. They thought differently about things back then. And no doubt there's some truth to that conclusion. This is a culture that's far removed from our own. And it was very different back then. We know that this poem is an example of a common style of poetry called the wasp. And it has a long history in the ancient Near East. In fact, we actually have writings from Egypt that sound very similar to this and were written probably a thousand years before the Song of Songs. So who knows, maybe in a time before toothpaste and good dental hygiene, comparing your girlfriend's grill to a flock of ewes might have been highly complimentary. Uh, so, however, uh, our reasonable but quick dismissal of this poem, I think, is overlooking an incredibly key point, And I think it's actually central to the message of the song. Now, if we look carefully at the poem, we notice that some patterns emerge. First, the poem, the poem moves in an order. It goes from top down. It indicates there's an organizing structure. Second, there are seven features of the woman that are expounded. And of course, seven's a very significant number to the Hebrews. It indicates wholeness, completeness. And this leads to the conclusion in verse seven, you're all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw. So that's one way we can look at the poem. We can look at it in its structure and kind of see it as a poem. And that's what I've been advocating for. I think that's the first step. However, this is not the only organizing principle. Now, one thing that you, find, you might find strange is that many of the comparisons found in this poem are not just with the natural world, but there were specific geographic features. The woman's hair is not just like any herd of goats, but one that leaps down the slopes of Mount Gilead. It would be a bit like if we wrote a poem like this today and used comparisons involving like the heightened grandeur of Mount Mitchell or the rolling sand dunes of Jockey's Ridge, or maybe the beautiful Mount Laurel flowers that come off the top of Okanichi Mountain that your children pick with you on a beautiful Sunday morning. Now, there are three of these types of poems in the song. So this isn't the only one. I didn't read them all. So I'm going to make some reference to the other ones so that we don't have to read all of them. But there's a progression among these three poems. And each poem becomes more particular and more complete. And the point of this is, of course, to show the lover's appreciation of his uh, woman is growing as his knowledge also grows. And it also illustrates that no one set of descriptions can wholly exhaust the beauty of the woman. Now, however, uh, I want to go back to this point about the geographic references. All three of these poems, these wasp poems, contained these strange geographical reference. Uh, we find comparisons to Mount Carmel, Lebanon, Damascus, Terza, Jerusalem, the oasis of Engadi, Gilead, and Hebron. 
This woman's beauty is mapped to a particular landscape in and around Israel. And it becomes more panoramic and more detailed from the first of these poems that we read today to the last of the poems. Now, biblical scholars debate this point all the time when they're trying to determine uh, the meaning of the song. Is this about the woman or is it about Israel? Is the woman being described in terms of Israel or is Israel being described in terms of this beautiful woman? And I think that actually misses the point. Because from a literary perspective, one of the things that I've been talking about is that that's what's great about poetry. It can embrace both. We don't have to choose. Uh, it's just what poetry does. Clearly, the poet of the song sees the beauty both in this woman and the land of Israel. He has an intimate knowledge of both and so sees them in terms of one or the other. And so in part, this uh, poem... Uh, because it works like a poem, is not just about this woman. It's also about the land in which the poet lives. This song is a song not just of the woman, but of the land. Now, land is a difficult theme for us, especially particular land. It's so important when we read the Old Testament. But we live in a highly mobile society. We don't quite have the same sense of place. Some of us come from crazy places like Long Island and Utah and end up in North Carolina, you know? Uh, so things happen. But the people of the Old Testament were very much tied to the land and so much of their identity is drawn from it. And so we have to kind of get in that headspace if we want to understand this. Abraham was promised not just descendants by God, he was also promised land. And not just any land, a particular land. There's a whole section uh, in Genesis in which he walks the borders of the land that was promised to him. The Hebrew slaves were not freed from slavery in Egypt, but they were also given the promised land of Canaan. And after the Babylonian conquest, the goal was to leave Babylon where they would return to their homeland in Israel. The prophets saw a glorious future in which the land of Israel would be renewed and transformed and even to a more glorious version of itself. So it's no wonder that for the poet of the song, the land is an important theme as well. So if we go back to the garden story, remember that's one of the other points I've been making. A lot of this poem is based on the story of Eden, of Eden in the garden. It takes place, notice that the, 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 it's not just any garden, right? It's the garden of Eden. Eden is a particular place. It's got a geography that's described in detail in Genesis 2. The rivers have names. We learn about all the precious stones in the different area in Genesis. The land is described by its abundance, its wealth, its fertility. It has a name. It's Eden. Eden means delight. And my point in all this is that this garden story does not take place in a vague, abstract, mythological setting. But there is an emphasis in this story of making Eden a real place with real rocks and trees. Now, in addition to that, the man and the woman that were created for Eden are intimately involved with this land. It's not just a background. It's actually a setting that, that is part of the story. They are given the garden to enjoy. 
They are tasked specifically with serving and guarding that garden. In fact, God says that there was no bush of the field, no, nor small plant that had sprung up because it had not rained and also because there was no man to work the ground. Now, that may sound a little strange to us. Why is it necessary for humanity to serve and guard a garden? And the answer is uh, partly because uh, we need to uh, know our terms here. A garden, by its definition, is an organized natural space. That's what makes it a garden. If it's not a garden, it's a wilderness, which is a negative image in Scripture. Wild places are not as romanticized to people in the ancient world as they are to us. We think that they're really cool and beautiful and everything, but that's probably because we don't really understand the dangers. They did. Uh, They were much more likely to encounter dangers in these places than we are. So when we look at our reading from Genesis 3 today, we find that one of the consequences of the fall involves the land. Specifically, the land is told that it is going to be alienated for humanity. And understanding how important the connection was between humanity and the creation, uh, understanding the train of thought that I've kind of led up to here, uh, the fact that this relationship should be broken should come as no surprise to us. There is now a struggle between the land and humanity who seeks to control and tame it, not to serve it, but to dominate it. In the pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. In other words, what Genesis is telling us is that as a result of the fall, the harmony that was meant to exist between the land and humanity caring for the land is now gone. In addition, the couple is exiled from the particular land of Eden, which they were placed and connected to, and they've been sent away from their home. And rather than the garden, they are now in the wilderness east of Eden. So we know as the story goes on, the Hebrews uh, people are displaced from their home too. They're in exile in Egypt, and they're, but they're given the land of Canaan. And when they're given the land of Canaan, they're also given detailed instructions about how to treat the land. Now, it may seem a little weird to us because our thinking is, is typically like we think of the law and we think of the Torah as like moral laws. We think like thou shalt not steal and kill. And then there's all these laws about how to take care of the land. But, uh, but if, we're, if we think about it in the trajectory I've laid out, it kind of makes sense, right? Just as man will take advantage of his wife and seek to dominate her, humanity will try to take advantage of the land and seek to dominate it. And the laws of the Torah are put in place to keep that from happening. God's ideal, though, does not just concern humanity, but it also concerns his creation. God's purpose for humanity is to create a world where a harmonious relationship exists between humanity and creation. In many ways, this story is very similar to last week and the week before when we looked at the breakdown between the relationship between the man and the woman and between the man and the woman and their vocation. So if we look at the Torah, we come across several principles concerning the land. First, the land belonged to God, 
not the Israelites. It was given to them for their use, but the land always belonged to God. And so the land was not for the Israelites to do anything they wished. Laws were specifically set up in the Torah to prevent exploitation of the land. Listen to this command from Leviticus 25. When you come to the land I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of solid rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows on it itself in the harvest or gather the grapes of your vines. It shall be a solemn year of rest for the Lord. Laws were put in place also to ensure that the produce of the land was available to the Lord or to the poor. These laws, there were also laws that prevented the accumulation of land by any one individual. And so these laws were designed to ensure the equitable distribution of resources. Again, we return to this ideal of harmony between the land and the entire community. Humanity is meant to administer the land as God's representative. And that means that it should be flourishing, but it should also be sustainable just as God intended for creation. When this does not happen, there are consequences. In the very next chapter of Leviticus, Israel is told that if they do not follow these commandments, all sorts of bad things will happen to them. Chapter 26 is in fact a long list of bizarre curses that result from disobedience. But toward the end is the promise of exile in which the people will be scattered among the nations. Just as Adam and Eve were, were exiled from the garden, Israel would be exiled from their land. Now, it's interesting. what's interesting for our purposes at the, is that the reason given for why this exile should take place is so that the land will enjoy its Sabbaths at last. Now, the story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament is that that does not happen. The Israelites break their covenant. They're disobedient. And they're removed from the land by the Babylonians. Jeremiah tells them that their exile will last 70 years. It's a very specific number, and it's not arbitrary. The 70 years was chosen as the period of exile to make up for the time when the land was not allowed to enjoy its Sabbaths. So committed, in other words, the point here is that so committed is God to the land that he removes his own people to ensure its fertility. Not all, but a part of the picture of the restoration of his people to the land is the renewal of its land for prosperity and abundance. And the point I want to drive home here is that the Bible is, is very clear about the relationship between humanity and the land and the actions and the effects of one to the other. They are tied together. Now, here's the thing. Here's why this is important and why I really wanted to go to the Old Testament and make this case. Because see, for us, when we think about sin, the first thing we think of is sin as an individual problem. That's what we modern Westerners do because we have such a strong sense of individuality. And it's not that that's wrong. 
You know, lying and stealing are in the Torah. It's not just about land management. When we do things wrong, we're sinning. And that's important. But there's also this whole other category here. Because in the Bible, we also find a communal mentality about uh, sin. And that means sin is not so much, is not, uh, not just an individual problem, but a systemic one that involves all of society. Poor land practices affect everyone. And it's the responsibility of the community to ensure the sustainability and availability of the land for the whole community. Failure to do so results in disharmony, struggle, inadequacy, and sterility. Exactly the result of the curse in Genesis 3 and Leviticus 26. It's all tying together. Now, let's go to the songs. The whole point of the songs is that it imagines a world where this is not a case. This is not the case. There is a restored relationship with the man and the woman and the land, just as it was in Eden. Images all through the songs are drawn from the natural world. We've been studying this book for four weeks now, and we hear again and again about fawns and grapes and pomegranates. Uh, domesticated and wild animals, plants, trees, and fruit all exist in harmony in this song alongside the man and woman. It's part of what makes this song such a beautiful work. And it's part of what captivates and uh, uh, stuns us with its sights and smells and sounds. And wind. However, the other thing about this song is it doesn't just imagine the past. It's also anticipating new creation. And that's what's important for us because if we, as we've seen, the story of the cross is not just about individual forgiveness of sins. It is, for sure. Don't let me tell you different. But the revolution on the cross was bigger than that. It was much more than that. The victory at the cross was a defeat of all forces that were released uh, at the fall by sin and death. Not only was the human vacation redeemed, not only was the relationship of the man and the woman redeemed, but also the relationship between humanity and creation. New creation is about that rest, the restoration of that relationship as well. Now, if you think this is just some hippy-dippy environmentalism 70s stuff, Let's look at my old friend, Paul. We've used Paul because Paul seems like Mr. Theologian, and yet he's probably one of the most imaginative and creative theologians ever. Uh, in Romans, of all places, in our, our reading today, we see Paul exercising his theological imagination and working out that the victory of the cross is not just a victory for humanity, but a victory for the created world as well. Listen to what Paul says in our passage today. For the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, for Paul, it is not just humans that suffer the effects of sin. It's the creation as well. But Paul also sees a solution for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until 
now. Notice the until now. Because Paul's point is that new creation has come because of what happens on the cross. And therefore, creation is set free from its bondage. What was accomplished on the cross involved the natural world as well. And here in Romans, Paul states a bit more succinctly here what the song is trying to tell us a bit long, more long-winded in poetry. You can hear it in our hymn today. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, this is my father's world, which, which I knew Lucia was going to pick, is, is great theology about this very topic. Um, again, though, for us as the church, as the agents of new creation that we are, as ambassadors of the new creation, it is we who Paul is talking about here who are the children of God. And one of the things that we have a responsibility is to take up our job as stewards of God's creation. The reason the creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God is because the plan was humanity and the natural world to coexist in relationship with one another, with humanity exercising wise rule. So that's what that means for us. So what do we do? What are some practical things we can do? First... I think it needs that we need to try and figure out how to incorporate the natural world into our theology. We so often want to separate everything, but that's not how it should be. The picture of the Bible is the community, God and the world connected in relation to one another. Embracing embracing a theology that includes the natural world opens all sorts of doors to understanding ourselves, others, and God. Again, here's where we see where our Western focus on individuality and our tendency to elevate the spiritual and denigrate the physical limits our theology. I don't want to replace the doctrines of sin and God's individual forgiveness of sin and salvation. That's not my point here. That is so important. It's so key. But we we need to have a bigger vision because the gospel is so much more. Good news is bigger than that. It includes the entire world. The Song of Songs is about enjoyment of the physical and the natural world. We need to embrace this. It should not be a difficult concept to realize that we can better understand, love, and appreciate the Creator by understanding, loving, and appreciating creation. In the garden, We were placed there by God, and we were given every tree that is pleasant for sight and good for food. The word Eden means delight. Enjoying creation is part of the ideal God created it for. So we can get out of nature. We can study Mount Laurel flowers. We can learn about creation. We can study science. We can take care of a pet. We can plant a garden. All of these can be a spiritual practice. Going on a hike. Studying atoms, bird watching, looking up at the night sky can all be forms of worship. And it's exactly what we find going on in the Song of Songs. It's exactly what we have going on in a lot of the Psalms. Second, we need to accept very uh, real, in a very real way that our status as God's image means we have a responsibility to the created world. We are to adopt practices that ensure that resources is available for everyone today and for the future. That was the whole point of giving the land its Sabbath. 
A wise ruler provides for the people and does not work them to the point of death to extract quick profit. Neither should we do that with creation we have been entrusted to. One of my favorite poets, one of my favorite thinkers is a guy named Wendell Berry. If you ever read any Wendell Berry poems, it's ab- they're absolutely gorgeous. I'm totally in love with them. And one of my favorite poems is, is titled Manifesto, The Mad Farmer's Liberation Front. In fact, the last line of the poem, you'll, you'll all recognize because you've heard me say it. The last line of this poem is Practice Resurrection. And I have a copy framed of this poem, and it's in every one of my offices. Here are a few lines that I think speak specifically well to this issue. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Who knows what a sequoia is? What's a sequoia? Someone say it. Giant redwoods, right? They're huge. The biggest trees on the planet. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. And one of the things that I find like about this poem and what I think is a beautiful challenge is it's such a counter to our short-term mentality. It reflects a belief that the world is bigger than our limited time and place. People in the future are important as well. As Paul sees it, the exploitation of the earth is one manifestation of sin and the creation groans to be released from it. Creation care is part of our mandate if we are to fulfill our vocation as humans. It is holy work because it reflects God's work of filling and forming creation for the benefit of his children, for abundance and prosperity. Christ on the cross has set us free, but Christ has also set creation free. So we see that the song can help enlarge our view of what Christ has achieved in the defeat of sin and death. It is a profound point that not only does, has God not given up on us in our sin, but also God has not given up on his good creation. Humans were created to be in, in relationship with each other, with God, and also the natural world. As agents of the new creation, we must keep this important but neglected doctrine in mind if we are to imagine resurrection.